Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hello, everyone. This is Rosemary Coates, your host for this edition of the Women in Manufacturing Podcast. I am the Executive Director of the Reshoring Institute, and we help companies bring manufacturing back and expand their manufacturing in the U.S. I also run a global supply chain consulting firm called Blue Silk Consulting, where we help our clients with global supply chain projects and also where I do expert witness work. On these podcasts, we interview accomplished women in business and ask them to share their experiences. We are looking for insights from women leaders. Today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Beth Pride. Beth is the founder and president of BPE Global, a consulting and training firm that facilitates global trade and strategy. She also has a list of accomplishments in global trade that's about a mile long. She is well known worldwide for her work in trade compliance. And I've known Beth for many years since we both worked at Hewlett Packard in the 1990s. So welcome, Beth. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we're going to just chat today about your background in global trade. I think it's a, one of those areas that um, is not particularly well known in business or it's a kind of a complicated mystery, I guess. <laughs> and uh, yet it is uh, so important, especially these days. So let's start off. Can you uh, tell us about your background and how you came to be involved in global trade? Sure. Um, nobody sets out to become a global trade compliance professional. I've, I've never seen anybody kind of sit down in high school or college and say, this is what I want to do. So in college, to put, pay for my tuition, I actually drove a truck. And so I got connected to global trade compliance as a truck driver, and that led me to working for Hewlett Packard, where you and I met. I was running their import program, and I realized I wanted to get some executive leadership experience because, you know, I wanted to be a CEO. And in talking to my management at Hewlett Packard, they were so sweet. They said, you're not going to get it here because, you know, we tend to hire the people that bring that experience. But if you go off and you get it, we'll have you back any moment. And so I went off to a software startup that focused on building global trade management solutions. And it was such a huge difference. I was a small firm and I felt that every action I took had positive implications throughout the entire organization. I got to touch everything that was being done. I got marketing and product management experience and it was fabulous. Um, and then I met uh, my CEO at the last job that I had prior to founding BPE Global and we were struggling. We had uh, run out of money and we were looking for funding and I met with the CEO and said, what are the barriers to us getting our funding? And he said, two reasons. Number one is our product is too expensive to make. And the second reason is we have too many executives. And he, he replied, well, I replied to him and I said, well, fire an executive. And he very politely fired me. And so that's when BPE began. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we've all had a few of those experiences where you where you know it was a terrible time, 
But on the other hand, you know, something good came out of it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. That was 15 years ago. He actually encouraged me to found BPE Global. He named the company. He's been a great supporter ever since then. So uh, no complaints at all. Uh, that's terrific. Good for you. So tell us about BPE Global. So what's, what's the mission and what do you do? Yeah, we help anybody with uh, getting their goods across borders, uh, whether it's an import or an export or both. Um, it's on the regulatory side. So what do you need to get your goods across the, the border? So what's the country of origin, classification, uh, value of your item? Are there other government agencies you need to be involved with? Um, we tend to come in very nimble and very, we actually love what we do. So we have a lot of fun um, with our engagements. But the goal as a small woman only firm, um, we um, come in and with the intent to teach our clients how to do the job themselves. And, and in many cases, we actually help them hire a full-time person to take over the import-export compliance responsibilities. And then we come back and audit them and support them. Um, most of our clients, in fact, over 70% of our clients are recurring customers that call us again and again for projects. And, you know, some projects are small, some projects are big, but we, we just enjoy and love what we do, and we learn every day and we teach every day. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so I understand um, that you have an all-female leadership team. Did you plan it that way, or did it just happen? It just happened that way. So um, actually, many people in the industry will know this. When I plan on hire, hiring someone, I start recruiting them multiple years prior to actually being able to make the offer. And so um, I founded the company in 2005, and I brought Julie on board in 2006. She knew from the moment I founded the company that she was going to be working for the company. It was just a matter of building the revenue and the processes. Um, Renee joined the company. I had recruited her for five years, and she actually is the company's top salesperson, and she had started selling BTE services even before she started working for the company. Um, most of the people that I, have worked, I work with currently I've served on nonprofit boards of directors with, so I, I can see what they do free um, and then see their technical competence in the industries that we work in um, and then target them and say, I want you on the team. Um, we have hired men in the past um, and they've been fabulous um, and have moved on to great things. Um, and we don't, we do not discriminate. It's just, it's managed to work out this way that right now we're an all woman team, including our controller. That's fantastic. Yeah, when uh, when I was at Hewlett Packard, one of the jobs that I had was a leadership role, one of the divisions, and it was an all all women leadership team. And we used to say, we tried to hire some men, but we couldn't find any good ones. So <laughs> that was the joke. Yeah, we couldn't find any good ones. That was the joke for us. So that's terrific. That's great. So um, tell us a little bit more about trade compliance. I know you said it was, you know, moving things across border. 
uh, across borders, but why is trade compliance uh, important to manufacturers? Oh my gosh, it's so huge. So everybody thinks, how can I reduce the cost of my goods? Um, and they look at lower labor cost markets to be able to manufacture their products. And what happens in a lot of cases is they consider the labor and the cost to establish a manufacturing operation, but they don't include the costs that are incurred when you cross borders. So I'll give you a really good example. So actually it's our first client that we got in 2005 and they are a US based company and they used to manufacture ink in Detroit. And they had the brilliant idea to move it offshore to China and they didn't mention that they were considering this. So they set up an operation in China. They sourced all the components and labor in China but they were shipping what they called their secret sauce from the United States to China so that they could protect their intellectual property. This probably sounds familiar to a lot of your, um, your manufacturing clients and, and, and listeners. Um, turns out the Chinese considered the ink that was made from local Chinese products plus the secret sauce, they considered it to still be of U.S. origin, and they were hit by an export tax on the ink. And the company ended up spending more to manufacture the ink in China than it cost them to manufacture the ink in Detroit. So they, they, they licked their wounds and they said, okay, let's close up shop in China. Let's move it back to Detroit. And when they went to apply for the permit to start manufacturing their ink, again, in the same state that they had manufactured it before, the state would not give them the permits because it's hazardous materials. So they're still importing inks in China, and it's costing them more. Now, things that we help them with is we help them to understand that if they're bringing that Chinese ink into the U.S. and then shipping it around the world, they can claim what's called duty drawback on the exported ink, and they can get some of the duties and taxes back that they had originally been hit by. And so we're actually helping them mitigate some of their costs and getting to a point where they can actually say it's cheaper to manufacture in China based on getting that, that duty recovery. So it's a complex thing that nobody ever considers before they start operating in other countries and crossing borders. Wow. Yeah, I think it's uh, trade compliance has always been one of those things that sort of pushed to a lower level in an organization, but today, Man, it's a strategic uh, decision at the very top levels because it has so much cost impact in today's environment. Um, you nailed it. So, so yeah. So I think the awareness and importance of trade has has changed over the years. It used to be, I think, when I started out, um, you know, 35 years ago. Uh, trade compliance was really at a fairly low level. I was responsible for it, and I was a brand-new graduate out of college, and, you know, I didn't know anything, and nobody in the company knew anything, so we stumbled along for, for a long time. Um, today, though, you know, it's so it's so crazy out there, especially after 9-11, um, and there's a lot of uh, – um, sort of notoriety and I think acknowledgement that this is an Achilles heel if you don't do it right in most companies. So well, you, sometimes you, it's not a full-time position. 
Yeah. So sometimes it's not a full-time position or you only have so much funding and you want to spend your money on an engineer headcount so that you can develop your product. And so that's where we come into play, where we can be a percentage of a headcount and we bring in, like you said, 35 plus years experience and you get a really good, efficient expert that you don't have to pay a full, full salary plus benefits to. Yeah. 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 I think that's a, that's a great point, and uh, you know, being able to outsource um, part of that is is fairly important in terms of a cost structure for a company. So um, over the years, you know, so the awareness has certainly changed. But how has um, trade changed and regulations changed from the government side, the U.S. government side, especially after 9/11? What's different now? So 9-11 brought around, around a huge awareness that our borders were uh, needed to be shored up and we needed to have um, more protocols in place to ensure, ensure that items coming from abroad were more secure. And so they implemented, the U.S. government implemented a program called the Customs and Trade Partnership Against Terrorism. And that program has been around ever since, you know, uh, we, we started um, establishing programs to to address the weakness in our supply chain. Um, It's also been carried out as the authorized economic operator program in multiple countries around the world. So the good news is, is the program that the U.S. established with CTPAT um, has now been, been established around the world and multiple destinations now are way more secure than they used to be. Um, That increased a lot of administrative burden for importers to make sure that they had implemented the CTPAT program. Unfortunately, it didn't translate into a huge number of benefits to importers as things like faster delivery times or supply chain movement. Um, it just it, it just kind of created an additional layer of burden. Um, and, and everybody rallied and they did what they need to do to make our supply chain safer, but it, it didn't bring a huge amount of benefit to importers, unfortunately. Another thing that has happened, though, that has been significant change to the way the U.S processes imports is we've had the China trade war. And so that's a pretty big, important thing to talk about. Rosemary, I'm not sure if you had questions specific to that. And in lieu of any questions, I can certainly talk about it. So with the China trade war, we've actually identified um, the imported merchandise coming from China has been specifically um, assessed tariffs, we call them section tariffs, they're either section 232 for steel and aluminum or section 301 for articles originating in China. And there have been four tranches of section tariffs that have been ass- assessed against items coming from China. And it's pretty much covering every single chapter of the harmonized tariff schedule, which is um, represents everything that could be imported. Um, and the duty rate ranges anywhere from 5% to 25%. And so a big thing that manufacturers need to consider and didn't consider is whether or not their project, products are subject to these tariffs. And so many yeah. companies were caught by surprise. Yeah. So it really um, changes the cost structure for a lot of companies. So, you know, this this all of a sudden becomes a big deal <laughs> that uh, you've got – additional uh, import tariffs on the on the import side from China which affects the the total cost of producing your product um, 
So, so who are the biggest threats in in trade today? Is it China or Russia or is it terrorism or, you know, where would we look if we were, you know, an executive role and trying to assess our risk going forward? Yeah, I think China is definitely front of mind um, because of the trade war. And and even if we have a change in our leadership in Washington, the section tariffs will not go away immediately or ever. And so China, it should definitely be something that uh, executives consider. Um, The instability in Venezuela is definitely a concern. Russia, absolutely. And and, um, Brazil is also a huge risk and a a significant issue. There there are countries that have just been doing a great job as far as shoring up and responding to the, the fact that it's scary now to manufacture in China and people are looking for alternatives. Um, we've seen Vietnam stand up, really amazing operations, and Taiwan doing certifications that the goods are made in Taiwan, not in China. Um, so that has been a tremendous opportunity. Yeah, I, I have a, a number of clients that are considering moving out of China, um, but it's uh, difficult to make the cost case, right? And in other cases, um, certain products are not available anywhere else. So, for example, I have a, a client in Minneapolis that makes uh, speakers uh, for sort of industrial applications, like a speaker on an airplane, you know, where the pilot comes on and talks to you, those kind of, those kind of speakers, and also in the defense industry. Um, and there's one of their important parts that's uh, only made in China. There is no other manufacturer. Um, and so when the trade war happened and this expensive part coming from China was slapped with a 25% tariff, it just wreaked havoc with their cost structure. Um, and so I worked with them, you know, trying to figure out how to strategize um, in, in terms of where they might be able to manufacture. And they ended up just moving the whole production to Philippines. Uh, where there is no U.S. import uh, import duty, um, so that you know they can produce products there and then bring them into the U.S. duty free. Unfortunately, that resulted in having to lay off about 200 people in Minneapolis. So hmm. you know, tariff and tariff policy. You know, I think it, most of the population in the U.S. understands now that tariffs are taxes on incoming products that ultimately the consumer is going to pay. But what people don't understand is that it often causes these changes in direction or a different kind of decision to move your production somewhere else. And in fact, in this case, resulted in a loss of jobs, not in protecting jobs in the U.S. That's definitely common. Absolutely, we're seeing that. And I think a really critical point, because you brought up the tariff, is in 98% of the time when a client calls us and says, we're getting hit by these section tariffs, please help us, we look at their classifications of their products and the classifications are wrong. Of that, you know, 98% of the classifications are incorrect. 50%, when we reclassify the items, turns out they're not subject to the tariffs. So you got to get your classifications correct. That's an essential thing. In fact, 
anytime you are crossing a border, the first thing you should do is determine the classifications of your product. And that tells you what duties and taxes are going to be due um, into every country in the world. So you can figure out your landed costs. And you can also, as a really fun thing, is you can look at tariff engineering. If you manufacture an item a certain way that would result in a different classification, that may help you to avoid some of the section tariffs. So, for example, um, not including certain uh, capabilities. Um, we have a client that made a speakerphone. And the speakerphone only works if it has a memory card in it. And so um, we realized that we could classify it as not as a speakerphone if the memory card was not shipped with the speakerphone. And so we're getting these things imported into the U.S. duty-free, and then the the client actually sends out the memory cards at the beginning of the sales cycle, so their customers already have the memory card to insert into the cell into the speakerphone the minute they receive it. So it allows us to to move goods efficiently and cost effectively. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I've worked with another client where they were. Um, importing products and as we were looking at their bill of materials um we've noticed a few things that were odd <laughs> and uh suggested that they re-engineer some of the products to uh, also have a duty shift a, a change in the a tariff shift a change in the way things were classified but also to simplify the product so they didn't have to uh, import so many components from overseas and that you know those kind of projects and like the ones that you were talking about as well are um, you know are really fruitful in terms of looking at your total your total cost and your your total approach so it's got two components to it sort of a an engineering tactical approach where you're looking at um, the whole bill of materials and and which way to move forward but it's also got a strategic component to it that is the next level up in your organization structure where a c-level executive um, would be involved in making a, a decision to move manufacturing operations to somewhere else or uh, to make some other kind of decision that affects the, the, the trade. So it's, um, to me, you know, over the years I've seen this, re this whole area of trade compliance really evolve from, you know, just looking up harmonized tariff numbers um, or, you know, schedule, back in the old days, Schedule A and Schedule B. Um, <laughs> that, that, that dates me, right? <laughs> um, uh, you know, all, all the way to today's environment where, where executives are actually thinking about global manufacturing strategy. And that Absolutely. includes... Yeah, yeah, that includes trade compliance where... Um, you know, you have to look at your alternatives and, you know, would it be actually better to move from China to the Philippines or China to Vietnam or China to Taiwan or China to Indonesia? Um, and, you know, what kind of effect that has on the overall cost structure? It's a very, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. What do you think about the um, the trade restrictions that are put on Huawei? Well, so those kinds of restrictions happen when you repeatedly violate the regulations and the regulations are public and they're very clearly stated. Um, 
if you make a mistake, a legitimate inadvertent risk, you're not going to get on that list that Huawei's on. What happened with Huawei is they still continued to um, do things that were counter to the export regulations, and they were warned, and they were warned repeatedly. Um, and unfortunately, they got listed, and that's created havoc for manufacturers who are in the telecommunications industry because a lot of them were dependent on Huawei uh, technology. I had actually, I had a export license to share technology with Huawei that was in the works when they got put on the list and obviously that was shut down immediately when, uh, when they were named. So yeah, it happens and you wanna make sure, that's a really important thing is you wanna make sure that when you are doing business you screen the parties to the transaction that you're doing business with to make sure that they're not on any of the government lists. So there's not just the entity list, which is the list that Huawei is on, but there's a specially designated nationals list. There's a restricted parties list, a denied parties list. Um, I, what I just found actually with an existing client is they told me they were screening against the OFAC list. And when I looked at the system they were using, Turns out they weren't screening against the Bureau of Industry and Security list. And that wow. left a huge gap. I know. So we're actually wow. screening over a million transactions. And I'll be able to tell you next week if they had any hits. So um, a lot of people put the program together partially and just screen against OFAC. So make sure you're screening against all the lists to screen against. Well, you'd think they'd be that OFAC would be a secondary list and um, the biz list would be primary. You would think, I, but they I, had I, never heard of BIS. Yep. Oh, man. Wow. That's kind of amazing. Um, okay. Well, I guess there's all levels of understanding and sophistication out there. Um, just to go back to Huawei for a minute, um, it's my understanding that um, not only U.S. companies are restricted from doing business with Huawei, but um, the U.S. government reach is now also applying to other countries or goods that are manufactured in our, in our um, allies' countries that are also restricted going to Huawei, that there is European countries that are jumping on board. I think Britain was recent. Um, so, you know, do you see that? I mean, that, that's got to be a huge international shift in trade. Right. So there's, there's two components to that. One is um, when the U.S. does a unilateral um, uh, sanction against somebody like Cuba, Nobody else has a sanction against Cuba except for the United States. But every other type of sanction we've implemented, including you know, Iran, North Korea, we talk to our partners, our allies abroad, and we get them to enact laws and regulations that um, also um, implement restrictions on parties that violate export regulations. And so um, the U.S. has worked very hard at lobbying with the EU and Britain to get them added, get Huawei added to their list. So that's just a fact of life and how the U.S., as part of these ally groups, um, we all manage security and compliance. The second part is there is a concept of re-export under the U.S. regulations and believe it or not, under the Chinese regulations. They just, uh, in 2017, they updated their regulations and they now have the concept of re-export where it basically says, 
anything that contains U.S. origin or that was exported from the U.S., that when it is re-exported from the country it originally was exported to, to a net new country, you have to go through the same hoops to make sure that you're still complying with the U.S. regulations. So if I have an item that is legally exportable from the U.S. to Britain, but then it's re-exported from Britain to, let's say, North Korea, which is a sanctioned country, that it would be a violation of the export regulations. So we often get re-export licenses for transactions when people want to move to a country that has license requirements based on U.S. law, even though the product is no longer in the U.S. Wow. Wow. So politics and our alliances or unalliances, um, yeah. As well, yeah, I, the shift in uh, each ad, U.S. administration's approach to international trade make, can make a huge difference at the at the company level. So, you know, if your company's trying to make decisions, you have to be savvy with respect to U.S. policy being made by the current administration as well, right? Well, it's well, huge. And so... For the first time ever in my life, it was when Obama was inaugurated, he actually mentioned export compliance in one of his State of the Union addresses. That had never happened in my entire career or the history of U.S. presidents. And then now, if we look at our current president, I mean, global trade compliance issues are headline news, headlines on the Wall Street Journal, on the New York Times. Even my mother knows what I do now. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that's funny because you're trying to explain this to your family and friends and their eyes glaze over. And, yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, fascinating. Fascinating. So, um, Beth, if you were to talk to people, up-and-comers, um, you know, kids about trade compliance or kids in high school or college, what would you what piece of advice would you give them or what would you tell them about uh, about the trade compliance industry well if you look internally at a company and you're working on um ex uh, import or export compliance at a company um you now in a role of a compliance officer at a company are going to be involved with research and development you are going to be involved with manufacturing you're going to be involved with finance you're going to be involved with the sales team you are virtually going to have the ability to work with and touch and influence the operations of almost every including human resources every department i think it's a tremendous opportunity to, if you've just come out of college, um, to join a company and get exposed to all of these other departments. And then, then you have the ability to move into the other departments. So that's, that's on the internal side. On the external side, oh my goodness, there is so much going on with global trade compliance from the opportunity to lobby and to suggest that certain things shouldn't have tariffs on it or to fight the section tariffs, which I do daily. Um, there's tremendous opportunity to get into international relations where you're negotiating free trade agreements with countries so that we can lower the cost for U.S. manufacturers um, to bring products into the U.S. and keep jobs in the U.S. So really, really important stuff. So I think it's a great field. I have lots of fun doing it. 
Um, just today, one of our aircraft manufacturing companies, they said, we're a bunch of engineers. You want us to, can you help us name our aircraft? And so I was working on naming this next generation electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicle. It was really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, the things we get involved in, right? Yeah. Well, that, now, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you please give us your contact information if anyone out there wants to get a hold of you? Sure. Um, you can find us at www.bteglobal.com. That's bestpeopleeverglobal.com, or my email is best at bteglobal.com. And I'd love to help anybody who uh, wants to cross borders. And we bring a wealth of information and knowledge. That's fantastic. Best, what did you say, best people ever? That's great. Best people ever. Yeah. <laughs> EPE Global. Okay. Terrific. All right. So you can listen to more podcasts on the Women in Manufacturing website, which is www.womenandmfg.com. That's www.womenandmfg.com. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates, R-C-O-A-T-E-S, at reshoringinstitute.org. And visit our website at www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Thank you, everybody, and have a great day. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>